And now, with Sound Investing, here's Paul Merriman. It has been a while since I've had a chance to respond to some Q&As, so uh, I've got 10 for today, so let's get to it. The first question addresses uh, the 10 fund portfolio. And uh, the question is, what changes would you make for the 10 fund portfolio if you need the money to live on? If value is volatile and you need the money for retirement, what role should value play in a retirement portfolio? And he goes on to ask, is a portfolio that is concentrated on large blend likely to be too volatile in retirement as well? Well, interesting questions. Um, first of all, my own bias is that when I retired and started taking money from my investments or our investments, I left the equity portion alone. I had the, the basically equal positions in large cap U.S. blend, uh, large cap U.S. values, small cap blend, small cap value, REITs in the uh, tax deferred IRAs, and uh, international large cap blend and, and large value and small cap blend and small value and emerging markets. Now, all of those asset classes are volatile. If you look at them in totality as a mix of asset classes, there isn't that much difference between an S&P 500 and the 10 fund strategy. But the fact is that even the S&P 500 uh, is, is destined for a 50% loss from time to time. And so that volatility, from my viewpoint, is going to be controlled by how much fixed income you put in the portfolio. One might think that by going to an all S&P 500 fund, because, because it is of higher quality in terms of the underlying portfolio than adding the large value or the small blend or the small value. But the problem is, as we saw from 2000 through 2009, the S&P 500 was out of favor for most of that decade, whereas a portfolio that had small cap and value, and by the way, international, uh, performed better. So I don't see a reason to get out of value or to get out of small. On the other hand, I certainly would understand somebody who said, well, isn't small cap a lot more volatile? Well, yes, it is. And I have chosen to address that volatility with the amount of fixed income in the portfolio rather than trying to eliminate some of the, those more volatile asset classes. Question number two. I just turned 35 and I haven't started saving for retirement. What should a late starter do to get caught up? What do you recommend for investors 
who don't have any experience. Well, as far as catching up, um, a lot of people don't get started until they are 35 to 40 years of age. Now, that does mean that you need to be a more aggressive saver than you would have had to if you started in your 20s. But, you know, you are where you are. And the first thing, I guess, that one has to do is to make sure they've got a plan. There is on the homepage of paulmerriman.com, under writings, there is a free chapter from Financial Fitness Forever. And that chapter, I believe it's chapter 10, has 12 uh, variables that you need to understand in order to figure out how much saving you should be doing, what kind of uh, risk you should be taking. And so I recommend that you figure out what it is you need to save between now and retirement. Now, I don't know what your expected retirement date is. I'm assuming from your, from your note that it's not an unusually young age, so you're probably talking about having another 30 to 35 years to be putting money away. But I wouldn't panic. Now, the other side of the coin here is what should you be doing since you don't have any experience? Because we don't want to lose time, uh, let's say, experimenting uh, with ways to do this. One very simple way to do this is to use a target date fund. That, in that case, the people who manage it will be managing it with your theoretical risk tolerance in mind, and you will have to determine what is the target date, 2065, 2055, 2050, whatever it might be, it will be managed with the idea that at that date, you will then be retired. So they will take care of slowing things down by adding more fixed income over time. Now, if you want to take it a step further, I encourage you to get a hold of the free PDF of We're Talking Millions. Just go to paulmerriman.com slash uh, uh, sign up slash uh, and you'll be able to get the, the free book. The last half of that book is about two funds for life, which is about the combination of a target date fund, conservative as can be, with a little extra gas uh, in, the, uh, in the tank by adding some small cap value. Take a look at that strategy. Uh, it would still work, I think, at age 35. Number three, I think I read that you and your wife no longer have any equities in your portfolio. I ask because I'm 80 years old and am confused over what I thought you said and what you are saying now. Well, I'm not sure where, you're, where you got that, uh, that comment, sir, but... Uh, I am 77, pretty close to 80, 
my wife and I have oversaved, so we have the ability to take a little more risk than we might otherwise. So we are still committed to equities, but only 50% of our portfolio. And that 50% is divided amongst uh, all 10. I talked earlier about the combination of different asset classes, but whether you're in the S&P 500 or some similar uh, large-cap blend uh, fund, uh, I, I certainly would be advocating for it if you have the risk tolerance. I think what starts to happen to us, and I even feel it myself from time to time, like I know I don't need to take the risk that uh, we are taking, that We'll have plenty to, to last our life if we had maybe just 30% in equities. But um, I still want to try to allow the portfolio to grow for others. And those others are much younger, <laughs> younger than I. So, uh, no, we're still in equities, but only half of the portfolio. Number four. Should investments in a Roth IRA be in your tax-deferred portfolio? And they go on to ask, you recommend that the tax-managed small-cap fund uh, be used in that portfolio, but Vanguard warns against using that fund inside a retirement account. They recommend the small cap index, the VSMAX. Well, we have a difference of opinion, and this is not the only difference of opinion. If you've heard me rail against the asset allocation in their target date funds, but let me tell you uh, why we recommend a tax managed fund inside of a Roth IRA or a regular IRA or a 401k if, uh, if you have that choice. Uh, it is, number one, the access to small cap blend we're looking for. And the things we're going to be looking at would be the expense ratio, the price to book, remember, uh, lower numbers suggest that there'll be more value in the portfolio, the average size company in the portfolio. And so as we look at these two funds, let's talk about the one that Vanguard doesn't want you to use, and that's the tax-managed small-cap fund. The expense ratio is 0.09. Now, that is four one-hundredths of one percent more expensive than the small-cap index that Vanguard likes in your situation. But the price to book, remembering that a lower number suggests more value orientation, but the price to book with the tax-managed fund is 2.04 as to as opposed to 2.43 for the small cap blend index fund. So 
it is 20% more oriented, I would say, to growth if we want to look at it that way. But where I think there is a, a big difference is that the uh, small cap fund that they recommend, the average size company is $6 billion, whereas the size of the average company in the tax-managed fund is $2.4 billion, less than half the size, and that's, and that's good because that's a smaller average size company. Now, what has this all led to over the last 10 years? The tax-managed fund has compounded at 13.5, whereas the small-cap index, 13.2. Now, it is important to, to see that the reason that the tax-managed fund is ahead is because this year, this year, it's up 20.6% versus 14.7 with the small cap index that Vanguard prefers. And the reason being is because of the smaller size, the more value orientation, and for, for, for what I know about the past, in order to get the best return in this asset class, we are better off with the smaller average size company and a lower price-to-book ratio. Question number five. Most of the experts say a lump-sum investment is better than dollar-cost averaging. What is your opinion? Well, I have talked about this a lot, and we do know the studies show that if at any moment you have money to invest you are better off to invest that than to try to time the market. And dollar cost averaging is a form of market timing. Now, I don't mean a bad kind of market timing. I think for somebody putting away relatively small amounts of money every month over a lifetime, as would be normal in a 401k or maybe in an IRA, that the dollar cost averaging guarantees you buy more shares when the market is down, guarantees you buy fewer shares when the market is up. But oftentimes, a person who has this dilemma, dollar cost average versus lump sum, is somebody who is not an experienced investor. Uh, very often, that lump sum they have is a lot of money and more money than they've had to work with. It could be from the sale of a house. It could be uh, uh, an inheritance. And so there is an emotional challenge and maybe, maybe even a fear to get invested, to, to wait for something to happen, to wait for a lower price, for example. And... When the market does go down, if that investor is right in hindsight for waiting, when it does go down, then, of course, it's very easy to start to believe that it's got a lot further to go. You are in this, this process of second-guessing 
the right thing to do. So on the one hand, based on history, put the money to work when you have it. On the other hand, dollar cost averaging in, it, it is really more a matter of a psychological hurdle we're trying to get over, a way to allow you to get in without second guessing. And having said that, the, the threat, the thing that could go wrong, is you start to dollar cost average in and the market goes down. And even though that is in your best interest, it's easy to panic and to decide, you know, I'm getting out and waiting for a better day. So I, it was real easy when I was an investment advisor because the advice could be given after learning more about the investor. When we're talking to everybody, then you kind of have to hopefully give people enough of a, of a feeling of the two ways to, and hope that they'll figure out which is the best for them. But I think if I had to make one recommendation for all the people that I've come across, I would probably favor the dollar cost averaging. It's true that if you get in there right away, it may mean you'll end up with more money. But to have a gentler, kinder process to get in may actually help somebody get in and stay for the long term. Now, I have shortened these questions considerably. Uh, some of them are two and three pages long by the time we get really to the meat of the matter. But here in question number six, uh, there, there, and by the way, I've had several uh, emails from this person, but the real question is, how should we prepare for a catastrophic market? Should we have all our, of our investments in government bonds? And if we are going to have them in government bonds, should we buy them directly from the U.S. government? or through Vanguard. What if Vanguard fails, they ask. Well, uh, first of all, when somebody has spent a lot of time focused on the catastrophic, uh, I, I, if I had them in my office and I, and I was trying to get to the heart of the matter, I have many times after having spoken to investors recommend they just put their money into short-term CD or, or a series of, of, of CDs uh, so as to have some that mature in one year and some that mature in two and three, even all the way out to, to five years and roll them over as they mature. Because many people just can't get over the, the possibility that the market could collapse. Well, the market, I'm sure, will collapse. I may be dead and buried for 50 years before it happens, but the market is likely at some point to have a catastrophic event. And how do we deal with that? Well, the way that a lot of us deal with it is, is we have enough money set aside in, in bonds, and, and I do favor government bonds, because in a catastrophic event, they are more likely to hold up than corporate bonds, certainly better than high-yield corporate bonds. 
you may remember that in 2008, there were losses in high-yield bond funds from about 20% as high to as high as a 40% loss in that year. Now, they came roaring back the next year, but th- th- there's no rule they have to, and things could have gotten worse rather than better. So how to prepare for a catastrophic market? You either, I guess, have to be a timer of some sort, or you invest conservatively with part of your money, like my wife and I do, uh, and the other money is invested in equities more aggressively. Now, for some people, it may simply mean they have to invest a lot more money in order to get where they need to go, but it's because they don't have the risk tolerance to do it any other way. And by the way, I have been comfortable having the bond portion of my portfolio at Vanguard. Uh, That is, after all, held in trust on behalf of the shareholders. Those bonds do not belong to Vanguard Management Company. They belong to you the individual investor. So I have not feared that. I would not like to have uh, all of my money tied up uh, in an organization that a manager that doesn't, in fact, uh, survive some sort of a catastrophic event, which is one of the reasons I personally uh, stick with the uh, larger, more... uh, established uh, companies. Number seven, what do you think of using a simple two-fund portfolio that uses U.S. large-cap blend and U.S. small-cap value? You know, I think that's probably a very fine long-term position in the equity part of your portfolio. I'm not saying that should be your choice for life, but I do think that is a a, a very interesting combination because it gives you half of the money in very high-quality companies that are large. And the other part, and by the way, it wouldn't have to be a 50-50 split. It could be 75-25. It could be 60-40. In fact, it could be 50-50 in the early years. And as you get older, the portion in small cap value could uh, could be reduced. This is a, uh, a strategy that I'm sure we'll talk more about in the future. But I think that is a legitimate way to, to do, to, to in essence, uh, create something that's similar to a target date fund, except then you would have to decide when to add the fixed income. But you certainly wouldn't be putting any fixed income in the portfolio when you're 20 or 25 or 30 or probably even 35 years of age. So I think it's a legitimate strategy for people who have that risk tolerance. And we recently uh, provided uh, returns that showed a combination of the S&P 500 
and small cap value. And over a lifetime, it, it was a pile of money. So um, I'll, I'll, uh, we'll be talking about that more in the future. Number eight, which investments should I own in taxable accounts and which in tax-deferred or tax-free accounts? Now, I found an article uh, on the Internet, and I'll have a link uh, and it in this article, uh, they take the, take the recommendations from uh, Bill Bernstein, who is somebody I have a great confidence and respect for, and it's and, and it's in a lot of detail, even even puts in order of uh, uh, of the importance of the tax implications of whether something goes into a taxable or a tax-deferred or tax-free account. Obviously, some of those are easy, like a tax-exempt bond fund or a REIT. Those are going to, uh, the tax-exempt is going to be in a taxable account. The REIT is going to be uh, in the tax-deferred. You're going to find value uh, in the tax-deferred because uh, the value funds are less tax-efficient. But... I want you to take a look at uh, at this link and uh, and see what Bernstein has to say on that topic. The other person, uh, if you happen to own Larry Swedro's latest book, and if you don't own it, you should. About and I don't remember the title, but it's about a successful retirement uh, uh, in, 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 with investments. Uh, it he too goes into uh, a lot of detail about asset allocation uh, location. Number nine, what is your opinion of Northern Trust mutual funds? And I don't normally uh, go into these kinds of, of questions in these podcasts, but what I want to encourage you as an investor to do is to get to know the mutual fund pages at, uh, at Morningstar. Because as I looked at the Northern Trust mutual funds, I noticed they have some funds that are actively managed and are quite expensive, and they have some funds that are index funds, and those are much less expensive. They are still more expensive than Vanguard's uh, index funds or Fidelity's index funds or even Schwab's index funds. But the bottom line is that the Northern Trust has some index funds, and I suspect that this person is asking not because they're thinking about Northern Trust, but because they've got—I mean, for their for their own choice uh, outside of of a four hundred one k. I am guessing that the Northern Trust mutual funds are inside of the four hundred one k. These people uh, have access to, and then it isn't even a question of how I feel about Northern Trust. It's a question of. 
how I feel about active versus passive. Because if you've ended up in the Northern Trust actively managed funds, I'm not all that excited about it. But if you've got their index funds, I would say that while they have a small group of index funds, at least they have some reasonable expenses uh, with those funds. And of course, lots of diversification. The last question, and I'll spend a, a, a few minutes going over this question. It is, what do you think of the combination of total U.S. and international funds that Tom and Don uh, uh, recommend? And then he says, plus they recommend some small cap value. Well, I don't remember exactly which funds and in what percentages. My memory is they are recommending the total market index funds uh, in the U.S. and international, which is very similar to what the people at Bogleheads recommend. And just by chance, we have recently updated, and there's a link in the notes to this uh, podcast, to the updated no-nonsense portfolios. If you recall uh, last year, we looked at a whole bunch of, of portfolios, uh, one fund portfolios, two, three, and four fund portfolios. Now, what we did to make this study fair is we recommended whatever the fixed income portion might be because whenever somebody like the Bogleheads or or Rick Ferry, or even our, ourselves with our recommendations, we'll have different amounts of fixed income for different levels of risk tolerance. So in order to judge the returns of these portfolios, we take out the fixed income and only look at the equity part of the portfolio. For example, Warren Buffett supposedly has instructed the trustees that when he dies, what he wants his, his uh, surviving spouse to have in her portfolio is 90% in the S&P 500 and 10% in U.S. Treasury bills. Now, that we call the Buffett portfolio uh, because he's probably the most famous person who recommends the S&P 500 as the only fund you need in your portfolio. And then J.L. Collins, who has a huge following and has done a tremendous job of educating investors that are getting started for the, for the first time, uh, and particularly within the FIRE movement, his recommendation is the total U.S. market rather than the S&P 500. They're almost exactly the same in terms of return, even though the total U.S. market has some small cap in there and some value and some mid-cap that the S&P 500 doesn't have. But it's so little that it barely moves uh, the needle in terms of return, and you'll see that in just a second. 
And then there's the total world market. And the reason that we added this to the one fund strategy is because uh, it gives you uh, a balance of both U.S. and international, and you can compare that to the S&P 500 and the total market index. Then, as we look at the two fund portfolios, that includes the Bogle Heads uh, equity holdings, and those are 70% U.S. total stock market and 30% international. That's their percentage. And then we have two portfolios, one that uses the total U.S. along with 30% small cap value, another use the total uses the total world index along with 30% small cap value. Now, Fama and French have not recommended this combination, but we are giving them credit for this combination because 30% of the portfolio is in small cap value. And they really are the ones who brought our attention in the industry to small cap value. So this is an honorary portfolio for them. And then we have one of ours, all value U.S. only. And, we, and that too is a two fund portfolio, a small cap and a large cap. And then we have a three fund portfolio from Rick Ferry. It's actually called the core four, but the fourth fund is fixed income. And then we have a U.S. only four fund strategy from the Merriman Group, uh, a four fund worldwide from from. The Merriman is in terms of the recommendations, but we do give Trev H. the credit because that's where it first popped up uh, on, uh, on, on the Bogleheads. And then finally, an all-world value strategy that is part of what we have uh, come up with within our Merriman Foundation. Now, that's a lot of portfolios, but in this table... You can see year by year since 1970. Previously, we had this study going back to 1990. We knew that wasn't fair to some of these other portfolios that had a lot of international because international did better in the 70s and the 80s than the U.S. So now we've got it all the way back to 1970. And I will tell you, all of them, all of the large cap blend portfolios are running between about 10.6 and, uh, and 11, okay? Then when you look at those that have the value, they are running from 11.8 up to 12.9. So... How do I feel about Don and Tom's idea of having largely large cap blend U.S. international? That's fine. I think it's a bonus that they've added some value because from everything I see over the last 51 years, a value has been a worthwhile addition. And when you get this page, I want you to notice how one year uh, after another, 
the better performer, you know, jumps around from the total market people to the va the value people and and to the fama people. And 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 there is no clear winner one year at a time, but certainly over the long run the addition of small cap and value helps. Now here's the bonus. Here's the bonus. There's another page, another table. Table one, no-nonsense portfolios. There, we not only give you the percentages in each one of these portfolios, but we also have Chris Pedersen's best-in-class ETF recommendations. So you could use any of these portfolios and simply use those best-in-class uh, recommendations. And, and they have included, and Daryl has done this work, I think, uh, he has included the expense ratios of each one of these funds. And before you send me an email and say, Paul, do I want to pay 58 basis points for a fund when I can get the S&P 500 or the total market index for three one-hundredths of 1%. Well, the bonus, the premium for small and value is huge over time. And so is it worth an extra half a percent to have some money in that asset class? Yes, I believe it will be. I can definitely say it has been the magic words has been well uh, thank you thank you all for uh, listening i hope something there will help you uh, uh, get your portfolio together that it's working most efficiently uh, i want to i want to tell you about august 18th that's the day I'm going to have cataract surgery, but way more important, that's the day that we are going to be releasing information on the new Merriman Foundation Lifetime Investment Calculator. We have already recorded uh, the piece uh, along with uh, Craig Apple, the young man who did this, created this calculator. Uh, I can't wait to get your feedback. And of course, as always, I hope you will share this information that we provide to others. I hope that if you are uh, interested in helping our organization, the best ways you can help, one, pass the PDF of We're Talking Millions. It's free to other people who it will help. Recommend, folks, go to paulmerriman.com. Um, and if you have an interest in supporting us financially, uh, you can make a donation on our website. Uh, we are a 501c3. It is a legally a tax-deductible item. And um, um, regardless of what you do, we will continue to work on your behalf and hopefully make your financial future better. Thank you. That was Paul Merriman with Sound Investing. Sound Investing, soundinvesting.com, and paulmerriman.com are produced and exclusively owned by Paul Merriman, who is solely responsible for their content. 
For more information, free articles, mutual fund recommendations, and more, visit paulmerriman.com.